0: And uh, this weekend we're, we're uh, closing off the fifth part uh, of the series on submission. So we've been in a series on submission. When I came back in, at the end of July... Uh, I, I thought I knew what the Holy Spirit wanted us to uh, go into, and I told Chris from Vancouver, I said, I know what we're going to be, uh, where we're going, and so he and I were already planning and thinking how we we're going to be speaking about some, uh, some of that topic, and when I got back, the Holy Spirit had hijacked the whole thing, and he said, it's August, and it's time for something uh, a little more serious, or quite a bit more serious, and I like that, because instead of waiting till January till we get on track, he, he's, he's speaking to us right in the middle of summer, amen? And he's keeping us on track, and that's what I like. So we're going to bow for a word of prayer because we've got a lot to get through, and we're going to invite the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts intentionally, all right? This is an intentional time where we say we choose to engage with your word, what you want to say to us this morning. All right, let's do that. Just hold your hands like that. Holy Spirit, thank you for this wonderful time in which we were drawn closer to the Father and through Christ and by the Holy Spirit this morning in worship. And we, we have sensed a growing nearness from you over the, uh, over the past uh, few years as you've been teaching us what it means when you said, draw nigh to me and I'll draw nigh to you. And we used to think that maybe that it was about singing harder, or praying more, or whatever. And while those things are wonderful, we realize that it's sin that separates us from you. And you have been calling us to holiness, to a walk of purity and holiness because you are preparing a bride that you are coming back for. And Jesus, we see the signs all over. We know it's soon. And so we want to be prepared and we want to draw nigh to you by forsaking sin and drawing nigh to you. So speak to us this morning and we choose to intentionally engage in what you want to say to us. And everybody agreed by saying, amen. Amen. All right. Today's message is the last in the series on submission. In Genesis chapter 2, God said that he didn't want Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Remember he said that? And uh, usually when we think about the word knowledge, what what we're really thinking about usually is something like intellectual knowledge, some understanding on a matter. And particularly in our culture, that's that's a big deal. But God wasn't actually talking about that in this particular case. He was talking about a different kind of knowledge. He was talking about an experiential knowledge. He said, I want you to trust me in this You don't want to get to know the difference between good and evil through experience. I mean, it's the same thing that we do with our our children. You say to a two-year-old, you know, they got the stove on, and you take the little two-year-old over there, and and the elements are red, and you say, don't touch that, it's really hot. So you put on their favorite uh, toy, and it burns, and it's a demonstration, right? No, no, don't do that. And you say, don't do that. It's hot. It's hot. And, and, but invariably, our human nature, what does it do then? It turns around and we, and we think we have to know knowledge or know something just by experiencing it. And God, who is good, says you don't have to know evil and the consequences of evil through experience. Trust me, is what he's saying. I want you to trust you. And, and isn't that a good God? Is that a good God? I think he's a wonderful God. When he warns us, he is like a good parent. He's trying to keep us from experiencing something he knows will be horrendous for us. But of course, we know the story. They, uh, uh, they, they didn't uh, trust him. They disobeyed and they learned firsthand by experience the cost of rebellion. And that's what we're talking about today. Today we're going to examine this theme in the context of sex and marriage. We could examine this theme in the context of any sin or any, any topic on, on any kind of sin. Uh, for example, like bitterness and unforgiveness, <clears throat> excuse me, as an example. But we're going to <clears throat> look at this theme in the context of sex and marriage. Because we have a problem in our culture and we have a problem in the North American, and the Canadian church in this area of sex and marriage and it's killing our churches they're rife with it even when they're not speaking about it they're rife with sexual immorality and broken marriages and so god is saying you don't have to experience the consequences that's what he's calling us out to right so that's the context that we're going to look at it at this morning Today, we'll examine this theme in the context of sex and marriage. Three weeks ago, I made three clear statements about sex, dating, marriage, and divorce. I wasn't talking about that, but it was in the context of something else I was talking about in the topic of submission in the church. And I made these three statements, any sex outside of marriage between one woman and, and one man is sin. Number two, any divorce aside from desertion, infidelity, or physical danger is sin, and any dating... Uh, 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 another person while still married, even if going through divorce proceedings is sinning. And those were clear statements, which is a nice way of saying strong statements, right? Now we'll see this morning why this is so, and we're going to look at the consequences of not submitting to God's design, in other words, rebelling, and then we'll answer other questions that have been raised Uh, along the way because of those statements that I made this is not I I, I repeat it is not a message of condemnation though some of you will feel like it for just a bit hang in there and we're going to get to the other side amen so if you leave early you're going to be condemned if you stay (laughs) you're going to make it (laughs) all right (laughs) don't walk out The first thing that we want to do is, I I want to talk to you about, we need to understand God's design for sex and marriage. So let's start over there. Because we can't get to the consequences until we understand what it is He actually said and designed. There's many ideas about sex and marriage out there today. For example, many years ago in Bible college, Fran and I uh, had married friends, it was a couple, who believed that having sex constituted marriage. And um, sadly, he went on to be a pastor and propagated that. But let's see what the Bible has to say about it. Let's begin our discovery in Genesis. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Very, very familiar passage to all of you. The first principle on marriage, we're going to look at six very quickly right now. There's the first principle on marriage is this. Marriage is a forsaking of all relationships as primary represented by the most basic one which is the relationship of a father and mother. So, for example, when you are born and as you're growing up the primary relationship that you have is with your father and your mother. And in marriage you break that soul tie and you leave father and mother which represent as the primary relationship all other relationships to make a different one primary, which is moving into principle number two. Principle number two, which we take out of the same verse, says, marriage is the establishment of a new primary relationship with the spouse. Thus, we say, if you are, come from the King James era, if you're that old, that dates you, leave and cleave, amen? amen. Leave and cleave. And we not only make a new primary relationship it becomes a new kind of primary relationship as you'll see in just a moment third here's the third principle marriage occurs within the context of a covenant before others this is really important Deuteronomy chapter 22 because there's a lot a lot of uh, of 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 fudging on this thing of what marriage is and it's causing us uh, many in the church to move into immorality a marriage occurs within the context of a covenant before others. Deuteronomy 22 says if a man says, for example, I married this woman, but when I approached her, I did not find proof of her virginity, then the father's, girl's father and mother shall bring proof that she was a virgin to the what? Town. To the town what? Elders uh, at the gate. It was a legal issue. In fact, it was documented. In Deuteronomy 24.1, it says if a man marries a woman, continuing in this line, who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a what? Certificate of divorce. We've got something formal here. We've got something documented here. We've got something that's legal here. It's a covenant that was made before others. It's not just something you say kind of in private just before you go and have sex. Do you know what I mean? Do you you see what I'm saying? Do you you see where I'm going with this? Number four, there's a fourth principle here. Uh, Marriage occurs within the context of a covenant before God. Not only is it a covenant before human beings, it is a covenant before God. Proverbs chapter 2 says, "...it will save you also from the adulteress, from the wayward wife, with with her seductive words." has left the partner of her youth and ignored the what? Yeah, go ahead. You just speak back to me. Ignored the what? Covenant. She made before who? God. Exactly right. This covenant oath could not be lightly regarded since it had all the solemnity of an oath and was attended by the very presence of God as one of the witnesses. So we've got Four principles there now, you're leaving primary relationships, you're establishing a brand new one, uh, you're doing it in a covenant before others in a formalized way, and you are, uh, and, and it's a covenant before God, that's principle, four principles so far for marriage, here's the fifth one. Fifth one in marriage, God fuses the two into what? remember I said before, there was a new kind of relationship. It's a new kind of primary relationship. He fuses them into one flesh. Matthew 19 says, so they are no longer two, but what? Say it again. One flesh. Good. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now that's interesting. God joins them in some mysterious, unique sense. This is not just a Physical unity. It is also a spiritual and uh, emotional unity of the most profound dimensions. He makes you one in a way that you can't, um, that you just can't, you just can't fathom. For example, uh, my wife is on staff too, and uh, and. we have a large staff, and so she sometimes represents me at certain kinds of meetings. And the staff already know, uh, they, they already know that if they ask her something, it's almost like speaking to me. Because they're be- uh, in fact, it's better than speaking to me <laughs> in most cases, right? It's almost like speaking to me because they know that she's got the same heart, the same thoughts, the same way of thinking. It's going to come out practically the same. It's like we, we're just doing things in sync. And when you've been married this many years, 37 for us now, and some of you are, are longer than that, I mean, you suddenly start paddling your oars at the same time. That's a good thing. Amen? So some of you need to get that in sync, right? And that's what that one flesh kind of thing is. They truly become soulmates. Here's the sixth principle. This one is where we start to really move into what we're talking about today. Here's the sixth principle. Marriage is the only allowable context for sex. 1 Corinthians 7.2 is very clear on this. But because of the temptation to sexual what? Immorality. So there is such a thing as sexual immorality. Each man should have his own what? Wife. Interesting, he doesn't say just a woman. And each woman, her own what? Doesn't just say man. It doesn't get clearer than this. Any sex within marriage between one man and one woman is, here's the good news, moral. Isn't that good news? And sex between one man and one woman who are married, in the context of marriage, is completely moral. This is good news, church. Here comes the flip side of it. Any sex outside of marriage, husband and wife, remember that those are the words he used there, husband uh, or between one man and one woman is immoral. It is sin. End of sentence. And once you understand that marriage happens in the context, this is why I was building this, once you understand that marriage happens in the context of a covenant before human witnesses and God, then it is clear that sex alone does not make you married. True? And... Once you understand that marriage happens in the context of a covenant before human witnesses and God, then it's also clear that any sexual relations before marriage, even if you were planning to marry, is clearly immoral, it is sin, because you are not married. True? That hasn't changed. God's law hasn't changed. God hasn't hasn't wavered a bit. Culture has Unfortunately, much of the church has, but God has not changed. His laws are still the same. And the reason he says that, he says, you don't want to know experientially the consequences of that, and we're getting to that in just a minute. Of course, that also makes adultery, homosexuality, and bestiality immoral as well. In the context of this discussion, let's answer one more question. Is sexual touching outside of marriage sin? Because that's, a, that's the new wave now of, uh, of having sex. It's not, it's not sexual intercourse. We're just sexually touching. So it's not sex. So let's examine that for just a minute. Matthew 5 says, You have heard the commandment that says you must not commit adultery, but I say anyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Evidently, you and I can commit adultery in our hearts, in our thoughts. Is that true? Okay, so let's put this on a scale. And you have thought adultery, according to the Scriptures, over on this side. And on the scale, you have sexual intercourse, adultery, on this end. Is is that represented fairly? What would you have in the middle of those two? Touch. I don't know if... (laughs) I thought that's how it worked. Thought, look, thought, touch, sexual intercourse. Is that how it works? It does. It absolutely does. So you can have such, if you can have thought adultery and you can have sexual intercourse adultery, then right in the middle, you can have touch adultery. Do you see that? uh, And so what Scripture is saying outside the marriage covenant, the Bible declares all three of these sin. But within the marriage covenant, God declares all three fantastic. <laughs> Is that good news? I'm telling you, there's some, there's some warnings here, but on the flip side, there's always good news. I mean, here's an example, Proverbs 5. Let your fountain be blessed, rejoice in the wife of your youth. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Is that good? and you should read the Song of Solomon. (laughs) But when you do, put your kids to bed first. They ought not to be reading that book. Listen to me. God is not a prude. Church, listen to me. God is not a prude, and the Bible is not prudish. Christianity uh, and Christians shouldn't be prudes within marriage. Our sex should be better than Hollywood's. It should. Why are we taking our cues from them? They don't have a foggy clue what they're doing. The Bible tells us the context of what to do, and He says, In there is much blessing, and outside of it is much sorrow. And we're getting to that. There's huge consequences. Now, here's a quick aside. If you are married, I, I don't know where else the tax is, and I just really felt like I need, because this is, this is what leads up to it often. If you are married, you do not have a personal friend of the opposite sex, period. Did you hear me? A friend? Yeah, can, can uh, members of the opposite sex be your friends? Yes. Fran and I have other couple friends, and so the man and the woman are our friends, and they're my friends, absolutely. But I don't have a personal friend from the opposite sex. I have only one personal friend of the, of the opposite sex. And my wife's quite clear on that. <laughs> there is only one. <clears throat> Here's the distinction. You don't hang out alone. I'll hang out with a man, but I won't hang out with a woman. Here's what happens. When you're dating before marriage, life is good. There's a few problems, amen? Dating is good. I mean, I'm talking about proper dating. I mean, right? It is. I mean, uh, I remember getting a big poster from a friend many, many years ago, and it had a big uh, pink hippopotamus on it with a rose in in the mouth, and on the bottom it said something like, I love you or something like that. (laughs) And I hung that thing above my bed, and I would, I'd come down to my bedroom and I'd swoon and just kind of fall over into my bed. Like, dating is wonderful, right? <laughs> then you get married. <laughs> <laughs> I don't mean that marriage isn't good. I mean, you know me. I've said plenty of that. I, that was just for fun. But you face personal problems. That's one of the kind of problems you face. You find out who you actually married. And she finds out who she married. True. And it wasn't, the, it wasn't a pink hippopotamus. <laughs> Financial problems, child-rearing problems, health and work problems, and it greatly depletes your emotional energy reserves in marriage. Life hits you. That's what I mean by it. And you wouldn't want to do it with any other one than your wife. But... Your emotional energy uh, reserves are depleted. And if you then have someone else from the opposite sex who's listening, encouraging, and filling your emotional tank, a bond begins to form. This is precisely what happens with office affairs. I do not have personal friends who are women for my sake and theirs. I do not go to restaurants alone with another woman other than my mother, my wife, my daughters, and my granddaughters. Family, in other words. And neither should you. In the office, I often meet with staff women. We have fantastic women on our staff. We've got a huge staff, we've got fantastic women. Some of them are pastors now, and they're leaders in their own right. They're amazing what they can do, and I have to meet with these leaders, and I meet with them often. But when I do, I turn on lights in my office. If I'm meeting in my office, I keep window blinds open. I keep my office door window open, and often my door is open if at all possible. And I have a policy with Fran who sits right outside my door. I have a policy with Fran that she may enter my office at any time without knocking, and she does. (laughs) She does. Uh, I'll be in the middle of a conversation. She'll pop in, and you know what she'll typically say? Oh, I didn't know you were meeting with somebody. (laughs) Yeah, right. he had a lifelong policy that he would not even ride an elevator ride an elevator with another woman alone ever strange woman i mean not, nobody and uh, that's how, he, how far he went you want to stay away from this stuff because of the consequences and that's where we're going now understand second part the consequences for violating god's design Any violations of the sacred covenant has consequences. Malachi 2 says, you weep and wail because he no longer pays attention to your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? That's like you come to worship and uh, you come early and you're worshiping your hands up and you're praying and stuff and somehow you're just not getting through to heaven. That's what he's saying. You say, why? It is because the Lord is acting as a witness between you and the wife of your youth, because you have broken faith with her, though she is your partner. The wife of your marriage, what? The marriage covenant. Has not the Lord made them one? In flesh and spirit, they are His. And why one? Because He was seeking what? Help me. Godly offspring. The reason that God is so firm about this matter of uh, of us keeping sex within the bounds of marriage and of you remaining in your marriage is because he knows that is the best chance of raising godly seed. There it is. He desires godly seed. And he knew that if you walked out on your marriage or violated it by having sex outside of marriage, that it would greatly diminish the chances of having godly seed. David was an example. Chris referred to him last weekend. David experienced this firsthand after he committed adultery. Because of his poor example, his son Amnon uh, felt free to lust after his half-sister Tamar, who he then raped. Absalom then came along, the full brother of Tamar. He was outraged, and having seen his father murder for sex, did the same. And because Absalom disrespected his father for having stolen a married woman and then murdering her husband, it's understandable that he rebelled and staged a coup against his own father, resulting in a civil war. Amen? Hellish kids he produced, some of them who landed ended up in hell. Can you imagine that? A man after God's own heart, God declared, And look what his family came to. Wow. I doubt that David ever expected his family would end up the way it did. I always say that the best gift that you can give your children is a great marriage. And the reason is that that's where you find security and love and discipline. That's where you can model how Christ loved the church. Uh, Let's just do a quick aside here because I think it's important. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, before you tune out because you've heard it before, listen carefully what he says he's doing with his church. And then he says, Husbands, I want you to do the same thing for your wives. This this is some of what Christ is serving the church for. He says, To make her, the church, holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And then he goes on and adds, uh, I just added this other piece that was in there, husband uh, feeds and cares for it just as Christ does the church. Christ is doing all these things for the church. It's not like he just died on the cross and went to heaven and he's sitting on the right hand doing nothing. He is still, according to Revelations chapter 2, we've looked at that before, he is still the head of the church. Amen? Amen? Amen. He's still doing a lot with the church, and we examine all that. We don't have time. But look at some of the ways that he is serving the church and trying to get her to, to grow up and to become holy and reach her full potential so that when he comes back, which is soon, that's our end time series, right? And we were singing about that before. When he comes back, he's coming for a pure bride, amen? He, and he goes to all those lengths to try to get the church like that. And he says, husbands, you're supposed to do the same thing. Marriage partners in your marriage, that's what you're supposed to be doing as well. He says, I want you to be true to yourself, uh, to each other. I want you to be faithful to each other. Does Jesus leave us or forsake us, yes or no? And he says, and I don't want you doing it either. I want, I want you to be, he says, I want you to be faithful the way I am faithful, and I want you to bring your wives to her full potential and bloom, and husbands as well, and those in your family. I want you to serve them. That's what he's saying, right? But let's, let's move on. So husbands and wives, your primary job is not telling them about Jesus. I'm going to stop right there, park on that one for a second. I didn't say you shouldn't tell them about Jesus. Obviously, you should. I said, your primary job is not to tell them about Jesus. Your primary job is to demonstrate Jesus. Amen? Amen. And if Jesus wouldn't do those things, neither should you. And here's the reason why. If they like what they see, they'll want Him. Right? When children today are bumped around from one parent to the next and they become insecure and feel abandoned and unloved, they become the true victims, they're broken. And often they become so resentful, angry, and bitter that they turn their hate or rage against God and the church. Is it just a coincidence that the stat, and I've used it before, that 80% of kids from North American evangelical homes leave the church and never return? That's a a full-blown North American church survey, parallels another stat telling us that adultery and divorce in the North American church are as high as in the world around them, the culture around them. Is that just a coincidence? Or do we have a cause and effect here going on? God knew all that. And so he said, sex must be in the context of marriage and the marriage bond must not be broken. You say, but hey, doesn't God forgive? Wait a minute. What do you mean by that? I'll I'll tell you one thing he doesn't forgive. Mumbling a quick sorry. Oh, apparently that was wrong. Sorry, sorry, yeah, okay. God, just please forgive me. Sorry. He does not forgive that. He says he forgives repentance. Repentance has it with a godly sorrow and a turning from it and going in the opposite direction. True? True. That's what, he, that's, that's what he forgives. But even when he forgives, that doesn't mean there aren't any consequences, and that's what our young people need to know. Young people, listen to me. There, does God forgive? Remember, we, we dealt with that question. Um, can't I just sin and then ask for forgiveness? Sure, go ahead, try it. But the consequences continue true you can get forgiveness but i mean uh if a if a child uh disobeys her parents and puts the hand on the stove and she later says i am so sorry that i disobeyed and rebelled against you does it change the fact that the hand is burnt no doesn't change it you see what i'm saying there's still consequences, and that's what we're talking about, but there's more. You say, well, whew, I didn't know this message was coming. Well, it's a good thing that my sins happened before I got married, you're thinking, or before I had kids, or at least aren't known by my kids. I, I really wish it was that straightforward, but it isn't. We all know that Adam and Eve's sin affected the entire human race, but it doesn't really hit home until we take a closer look at it. Their sin was the equivalent of stealing only one, I said this two weeks ago, of stealing one small cookie of a batch your mother left on the counter to cool, which she ordered you not to touch. That was the equivalent of what, we did, what they did. You know what we call that? Petty theft. Actually, we don't even call it petty theft because it would never make the courts. Amen? The result of Adam and Eve's, take a look at this, petty theft, a fruit at a millionth, was that one son was murdered and another one became a murderer. Now, how can this be? First, their sin wasn't all that big. Wouldn't you agree with me on that? Thinking rationally, was that a really big sin in the scheme of things? They stayed true to each other, right? It wasn't a sexual sin. It was a cookie. Second, The kids weren't around to see it, so it wasn't modeled. Ah, so this is different than the David thing now. Third, the kids weren't directly affected. They didn't steal the kids' cookies. (laughs) Right? They didn't abuse the kids. They didn't do anything directly to the kids. Fourth, uh, and uh, by the way, let's just stop there for a second. There's no, le- you can't see cause and effect like you could in the David one. Do you see the difference? You can't see the cause of stealing a fruit and getting this with these kids. And there's a fourth one. It happened so long after they repented. You say, well, did they repent? Sure they did. You know how I know? They were wearing animal skins. And the animals were slaughtered because of sin. They were sacrificed. The animals were sacrificed. And then their skins were taken. And that's what they had to now dress themselves because of the shame of sin. So they repented. So how do they land up with this? We all understand how physical genetic defects or dispositions can be passed down to succeeding generations. Right? I can't smell. Never have been able to. And I passed that on to Chris. Chris can't smell either. You didn't know that about him, right? I'll tell you one other little tidbit here and you can mock him then. He's two, when he was two years old, we were living in Kitchener-Waterloo and we were by a mall there in Kitchener and uh, and there was these big, big, big flower beds and, during the summer and uh, he'd walk around. He's just the cutest little guy, not like now, but uh, he was, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding, just kidding. And he would go and he would just... And he would smith, sniff them and he'd go, Mommy and Daddy, they smell so nice. And he would do that. And he never could smell. <laughs> and he can't smell to this day. But anyway, let's get back on track. The point is, there, we know how these genetic things can affect us uh, physically. In a doctor's office, the first order of business is your family history, right? And the older you get, the more family histories you do, right? Because you're going in a lot. <laughs> I know. The same principle is at work in the spiritual realm. When you sin secretly or openly, the devil can gain an entry point or foothold into your life. Ephesians chapter 4 says, In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a what? Foothold. Hang on to that word. Hang on to that word. There are different kinds of entry points by which the devil gets a foothold in your life in order to build a stronghold of bondage in your life. The first is personal sin. Saul, for example, King Saul, and you remember the story. I'm not going to tell the whole story, you've heard it before. Uh, Saul is told to uh, to kill King Agag and all the people and all the animals. He keeps the best ones. He says it's because he wants to sacrifice them to God. You know that part of the story. Now listen to Samuel's response, particularly the end which we haven't looked at before. Okay? Here we go. It says, so Samuel said, Has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than what? It's better to obey than come and than, than worship here on Sunday morning. As important as that is, he said, if you're not obeying, this cancels out; doesn't mean anything. And to heed than the fat of rams, for rebellion is as the sin of help me. What's the word? Yeah, you got to hang on to that word now. Witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and what? idolatry two words witchcraft and idolatry hang on to them the text should read for rebellion is witchcraft witchcraft in any form has the same result it directly opens one up to the demonic realm we have people who have been involved in it who have come to christ here at southland and they and they 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 will tell you that its goal is to control circumstances situations or people The more you rebel, in fact, they they will tell you, and I've done this, I've checked it out in reading as well. They tell you that if you want more demonic power so you can control others, what you have to do is intentionally go and be very rebellious in certain areas. And by doing that, you increase your demonic power inside. You see what's happening here? Rebellion is witchcraft. Not only that, I, he says stubbornness is as idolatry. Stubbornness is idolatry. What's idolatry? It's worshiping idols. People say, you know, in our, uh, we, we don't believe in spirit beings. That's probably problem in North America. We think, and Ezekiel tells us, that behind idols are what? Demons. Demonic spirits. So disobedience opens you up to entry points for demonization. And it's like, and stubbornness is like idolatry, worshiping idols who are actually demonic spirits. What are you doing? Encouraging demonic activity in your life. As believers. That's That's what can happen. And we can see how this actually happened in Saul's life. Rebellion opened Saul's soul to the influence of a controlling spirit, which caused him to behave so differently than when, when he was in his right mind. First Samuel says, Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Before he was made king, Saul was unassuming. He obeyed his father. He respected the things of God. True? If you had told him that one day he would kill 85 innocent priests, their wives and their children in a fit of rage, he would have told you that that he could never do such a thing. The sad truth is, he did. The evil spirit tormented him and influenced him to to live a life of jealousy, anger, hatred, strife, murder, and deception. It legally influenced him by way of his unrepentant rebellion. And here's the key. Not only can the devil gain a foothold, that's what it did to Saul, okay? That's the personal sin that I was talking about. Now listen to this. This is the part that's going to trouble you. Not only can the devil gain a foothold in your life through personal sin, he can also gain a foothold through generational sin. Listen to Exodus 20. Remember last week uh, Chris went to Exodus and he gave us the one promise that comes in the Decalogue, right? The The first commandment with promise was, honor your father and mother. And he was talking about submission to parents and that kind of stuff, right? Here is the first commandment with warning. Listen to what the command and warning are. Listen to what they are in the context of what I just said. You must not bow down to them. It's talking about idols there, if you read the verse before. Or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection of any other gods. Why? Because there's demonic powers behind, as the prophets tell us. I lay the sins of the parents upon their what? Children. The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. Do you see what's happening? See what I just showed you? Stubbornness is like idolatry and when you worship idols that's what happens to the third and fourth generation it gets passed down and he says all disobedience that's not what Saul was doing Saul just simply disobeyed had nothing to do with intentionally disobeying demonic spirits but that's what's actually happening we know that because we deal with this a lot here at Southland people that are coming back to christ and it's a wonderful thing that's what happened to adam and eve's family do you see it now though they only took one fruit before they had even uh, before they even had children their family suffered terribly and we see that this is a correct understanding by the following in john chapter 9 verse 2 the disciples saw a blind man and came to jesus with a question who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind. And in this case, Jesus replied, neither. Now listen to my next statement carefully. But the question itself that they asked wouldn't have any relevance unless in previous discussions that had indeed been accepted that it was possible to suffer as a result of the sins of the parents. Does that make sense? Jesus didn't say your question is ridiculous. He just said the answer uh, to your question, which is not ridiculous, in this case is neither. Meaning that sometimes that is the case. That's the implication behind it. Now I'm going to share a consequence from my own life, a uh, friend in my life, and uh, This has been heavy on my heart. I've never done this before, ever. And um, I spent some three days wrestling with this and I even woke up in the middle of the night and the thought was there and I know the Holy Spirit only too well. So I called my wife in and I sat down with her and I said, Honey, this is what I'm feeling. What do you think? She said, Honey, life is short. Uh, It doesn't matter what anybody thinks. And i All matters is what God thinks, and soon we're going to see Him. And let's make our lives count. I said, okay, honey, then let's do it. We did a little listening prayer, and it was confirmed. This is not sensationalism that I'm going to share right now. Fran and I, knowing that we would marry back in 1973 when we did marry, but knowing that we were going to marry, we had premarital sex. Neither of us had or has ever had sex with anyone else, and when planning on getting married reasoned that this would be okay when we were teenagers, no one would ever know, no one would find out, no one would get hurt. But that all changed on the weekend of September 17th to 19th, 2004. Fran and I attended a weekend retreat for pastors and their wives down in Baton Rouge, and our North of New Orleans, and uh, where uh, we were, we were looking at some concepts of what they were doing uh, just before I birthed the Encounter God retreat. There, what they were doing there wasn't exactly the same. In fact, it's very different. But we wanted to see if there were some things that might be helpful. It wasn't a particularly eventful weekend. But we had decided to add a day for ourselves to the trip since we were already there. So, after the last session Sunday morning, we drove east of of New Orleans along the Gulf to Biloxi. And here we booked into a hotel overlooking the Gulf. We had supper, then we retired for the night. We had planned to spend the next day on the white sandy beach reading. It was all perfect until we started having our devotions early that morning. During our devotions, the Holy Spirit revealed to Fran all the hurt, the sins of premarital sex had caused our children. He revealed that our sins, though hidden, had opened up the door to, demoni- to the demonic, allowing them to have access to two of our children. Our secret sins had opened the door to something called generational sins and curses that passed down to the next generation. Suddenly, something Stefan had told us came to mind that since grade one, he had always been aware of a demon accompanying him. Think of that. A little kid aware of a demon at that age, growing up in a godly pa- uh, home at, the, uh, at that time, and a father pastor. Now, I want to put this in context. I just told you now what happened. Now, I'm going to put a context to it because I want you to help, uh, I help you see something here. 32 years ago, at the age of 24, a good number of years after we got married, I completely surrendered my life to Jesus Christ, and I've never looked back. I had a great career that was quickly developing. A major Canadian airline had already contacted me to come in for an interview. But when the Holy Spirit called me at age 26 to leave it for vocational church ministry... I left all to go to school and prepare for church ministry. I was as passionate for Jesus as any young person you have seen here at Southland, and you know how passionate our young people are here. I was listening to him in prayer, even though everyone around me thought I was nuts. And I would act on the directions he gave me to the point that at age 30, upon uh, finishing four years of school, I left my driving school business and moved my family of six to another community, Woodstock, with no money, no salary, no support, only eight people, including my family of six, to start a church. People thought I was nuts. I was. I, was in, I loved Jesus. I was willing and did forsake everything for him and began a life of walking by faith. Here's context number two. We loved our kids, and while I was planting a church in Woodstock, I did not neglect them. The children will tell you this. Uh, uh, let me make a little side here. Uh, the, 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 the kind of work habits that you see out of me for almost 15 years now, that's not how I was uh, in Woodstock. I had a family at home then. Now they're all gone, so Fran and I, just we have a g- just great old time with you, and we work long hours now. But we did not neglect them. The children will tell you this. We loved them. We did so much with them that one day Chris came home from school, told us that no one in his class did half the stuff that uh, that they got to do with us. Fran even homeschooled them for the first few years so that they became incredible readers. Way ahead when we integrated them in the school system, according to the principal and the teachers. And we had clear discipline, as Chris talked about last weekend. And we taught them about Jesus and prayed with them. Many, many people told us in those days that they hadn't seen a much better or happier family anywhere. I'm not suggesting that we were perfect parents, not by any standard. I'd love to do it over again. There's things that I now understand better. I would do better. Oh, yeah. What I am saying, however, is that we weren't bad or neglectful parents, and yet, despite being completely sold out to Jesus and parenting to at least a decent standard, when they turned teenagers, two of them, two out of four, completely rebelled and descended into a personal hell of their own. I won't explain that. The length of time from one entering, and it included drugs and witchcraft and the whole thing, But the length of time from one entering and the last one finishing was a total time of 12 years, non-stop. There were many sleepless nights, worry, anxiety, tears, fear, shame, hopelessness, not to mention the impact on this once very happy family. Those were very long and difficult and trying years. And always we were puzzled how you could do so much right from the start and still end up like this. That is, until we sat in that hotel room on the Gulf of Mexico in Biloxi, Louisiana, and the Holy Spirit pointed out to us that the secret sin of our youth, confessed and forgiven decades earlier, had been steadily spreading its evil poisons within our children right under our noses. Of course, we didn't believe in all those things in those days. We're never taught in those things, so we weren't aware. We sat in that hotel room stunned. We were horrified and in tears. We were incredibly repentant. We had been reaping from 1992 to 2004, starting a full 19 years after our sin and lasting until a full 31 years after our sin huge and costly consequences for rebellion. We and our family came to know experientially the difference between good and evil in this area. We never did get to the beach on the Gulf because by the time we were done, it was late in the day. We had to pack to leave uh, for New Orleans. Right there in that hotel room, we confessed and repented of the impact this had on our children. Well, they were still responsible for their own choices, And we broke the generational sins and curses and took authority over the demonic spirits that had wreaked such havoc on our family. And the next Sunday was my 50th birthday. Our family was over. We gathered our children, including the spouses, and confessed what we had done so many years before, long before they were born, and asked forgiveness for the impact this had had on them. None of the children said one word. You could have heard a pin drop. Then we prayed together, again, breaking bondages, curses, and taking authority over the demonic spirits. Later, each one came to us separately and thanked us for doing this very sincerely. They hugged us. There were personal and generational consequences. There are personal and generational consequences for all sin. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, and you don't know where it's coming out. Let me warn you. God doesn't want you to know this experientially. He's a good God, isn't he? That's why he warns you. Because he loves you. Because he is good. He is good. I want to leave you with a promise before I give you a couple of practical instructions. Because for some of you, you're in the same boat that I was. You made some really drastic mistakes. And you, have, you already know what they are. You already know what the consequences are. And I didn't come here to beat you over the head. God is not beating me over the head. I want to give you a promise, however, because I'm also experiencing this. Exodus chapter 20 says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not... We read this before, but, but look, now I'm going to add another piece. Will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon the children... The entire family is affected, even children in the third and fourth generations of those who reject me. But look at this. But I lavish unfailing love for a thousand generations on those who love me and obey my commandments. Do you know what? I've been experiencing this. And uh, my children did come back to the Lord, as as most of you know. And uh, both of those who were gone. We fasted and we prayed during those years and many others prayed and and God was gracious and, and, and he, re- he, he rescued them. And today, both of them are passionately lo- in love with God. I don't mean they're Christians. No, 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 no. They're crazy. <laughs> you know, You know that. And one of them is now on staff and this is what he does. He does deliverance ministry. And many have been set free from that. I know... I'm now starting to see the results of obeying God as well. That's good news, amen? And he says, as much as you reap bad, if you go down that road, he said, if you go down this road and you will trust me and live for me, you will experience incredible blessing in your life and into your next generational offspring. 2,000 generations, he said. As much as that was bad, I'll multiply it way more on this side. But we've got to deal with our stuff first, amen? And we had to deal with our stuff. It wasn't simple. And when one of them came back to the Lord, we had to do, I remember a deliverance session that I, was in, that I led in delivering him of demonic, of demonic spirits after he came to Christ. It was unbelievable. But you know all about that. This is what I want to say. Some of you need to stop at our prayer room. You know the team is there, trained. They know how to do these things. They're ready to pray for you just out the double doors. And uh, you need to do some confession, repentance, and prayer right after the service. There's some husbands and wives. Some of you need to take a block of time, get alone, and discuss and make some things right in your family. Some of you will want to call the office for a session on deliverance for demonic bondages and from ha- harassment uh, from demonic spirits uh, if you've got into some stuff like that. And uh, Chris really encouraged me uh, this morning. He said, Dad, why don't you do... Uh, I, think, I think the church would really benefit if you put a, a little practical some steps for, for those of you that want to say, how do I come out of this now? What do I do next? I messed up, but how do I come out of this? So what I'm going to do is I'm going to tape that early in the week, and by Thursday there's going to be something online, just like uh, he had for the parenting thing this weekend. All right? And if you want more, uh, you, can, you, can, uh, get it, you can get it that way. Let's bow for a word of prayer right now, okay? Father, thank you that you love us. There's no question about it. You demonstrated over and over that you would write us a letter like this and tell us and warn us so that we wouldn't have to reap the consequences. And then you love us enough that even when we do, you don't just condemn us. You put your arms around us. You forgive us and you love us back. You tell us how to get back on track and how we can know blessing in our life. God, I pray for people who are now... wrestling with stuff in the past and their eyes have been opened I just pray Holy Spirit they wouldn't run from you but they would run to you and I pray Lord that many of our young people would would not forget this and would be warned and would not come to know evil in these areas experientially oh God make us a pure church for it's in Jesus name we pray Amen